of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews, we're going to be in the 8th chapter today, and we're going to be looking at this message uh, of how Jesus is confidently declared by the Bible and thus should be confidently received by the body of Christ, the people of faith, that He is better. He is good and He is God. But he is exceedingly better than any message, any hope, any philosophy, any other object that we may put our trust in. Jesus exceeds them all. And today we're going to be looking at his gift to us, his his um, covenant that he makes with his people as this one who is superior, as this one who is eternal, as this one who is perfect, as this one whose name, as we've discussed, is, is more of more worth, greater worth than Moses, of, of higher and older and deeper faith than, than, than Abraham, of greater power and ability than angels, as, as bigger and better than any priesthood. We're going to look at the message of this Jesus. So would you stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word, And uh, we're going to be in Hebrews, the 8th chapter, looking at the 13 verses there. If you are using one of our pew Bibles and needing to find it, it's going to be on the screen, but we always invite people to to use the pew Bibles. It's going to be on page 1065, and you can turn there. And if you need a Bible to call your own that is faithful to the text and accurate and also very readable, that's our gift to you. But here we go. The word of the Lord given to his people says this. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since they are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, He is a mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with His people, He says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, He has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Let us pray. Lord, we have read from Your Word today and I pray that it would be a treasure to us knowing that out of Your love, out of Your kindness, You have not only chosen to speak this so that we might know You, You have made it accessible to You so we might grow with You. We might trust You and follow You and be obedient to You. We might see who You are and what You have done and we may know what You have said so that we, Your people, may be those that are growing in our our walk with You. We may be going about our business doing what You have told us to do according to Your will and we would not forsake it. Lord, help us to learn from You today that Your promises are to be cherished and they are good. And they are also transformational. They change us forever. Not only our status with You, but our very life that follows. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Now each week when we come together and we open up God's Word, we always want to help people answer four basic but serious questions when it comes to Bible study, whether that be corporately and collectively as we gather as the church, or whether that be the questions that still need to be asked when you're reading the Bible on your own or in a small group. These four questions are so potent and so good for us. The first being, what does the Bible say? That that we do not take for granted this holy book that God has treasured and and passed on to us. We, We see what it says. I was talking to someone this morning at the coffee shop and, and just in casual conversation and, and we were talking about history. And, uh, and, I, and I said, you know, I, I, one of the trivia questions that was on the board asked about who was the father of, of recorded history and that's Herodotus. He was a Greek uh, historian and gave us like the basic practice of it. And they said, how do you know that? How, how did you know that? And I said, well, I, I, I dabbled a little bit in history and, and, and studied it in school. And I said, it really goes well with what I have to, to teach each week. And, and you know, the, the barista, she knew I, I was a pastor. And someone said, well, are you a teacher? Are you a history teacher? And I said, no, I, I'm a pastor. And so I teach people the Bible. And I said, so it's really good for people to understand and helping people understand that this book that we hold it took 1,500 years to make. And it was written by 40 different authors and, and, and in three different continents and three different languages. And yet, it is seamless in how it is all drawn together by God. But helping them understand that this book didn't just go out of the sky one day and someone turned over a rock and there it was. That's not how the Bible came to be. The Bible was given in the middle of history. And, and as such, God was speaking to people in a certain way so that they may know Him and draw near to Him in that time in history. And so today, we don't need to forsake it and just think it's just an old book that just was turned up on a rock somewhere or that my grandma really likes. But we see what it says. It's God giving His kindness to us by sharing His Word. 
We also need to see what it means. As God was speaking in these different times in history, He had a point and a purpose in that specific time and place. And just because we may live thousands of years later does not mean that meaning has changed. It still holds true that God didn't change His mind in the way He gave it. But we need to see what it means. This is why Bible study is good. Not just Bible quoting. It's really good to quote the Bible, but it's also good to understand what it means. Where God was sharing in that time and place, as we're going to look here in the book of Hebrews, a letter that was written somewhere in the mid-60s A.D. before the destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70, uh, under a time of intense persecution. Some believe this was under the, the emperorship of, of Caesar Nero, and also during a time of great tumult, uh, tumult and conflict between the Jewish people and their own community. We need to see what it means and, and how it was given in that certain time and place. Well, then we can see, after we look at the meaning, how does it apply? As its meaning never changes, what is the relevant uh, connection to where I am in my walk today? And make no mistake that even though it was given in that time and place, God is still living and active and taking His Word and making it pierce deep into our soul to judge where we really are with Him and where we need to be with Him. It is living and active just as effective today as it was then. And we need to see the significance of this meaning in our life and apply it. But lastly, we need to remember that this is a book that was given to us out of a, out of a God who is holy and out of a God who calls for faith. We'll be looking at the definition of faith in a few more weeks when we get to Hebrews chapter 11. But as such, we need to see what it's saying and then really wrestle with the question, Am I following God's Word in faith? Am I trusting what God is saying? Am I applying my trust in Him with faith? Am I following Him out of love, looking at how He has loved me? And today, as we get to this place in the book of Hebrews, one of the things we're going to see in that question of faith, in that question of trust, is we're going to look at how God did a new Thing, a, a new covenant through Jesus. That His coming wasn't just some guy arriving on the scene so that we could have Christmas presents one day and Easter baskets another. That wasn't the sole purpose of Jesus. Believe it or not, it's not. They are great tools. That's one reason we're sending Christmas presents. By the way, not all those presents will arrive on Christmas. <gasps> some will be given out in March! Can you believe it? But yet the message of the Gospel will be just as true in March as it is on December 25th. But we need to look and see that Jesus didn't arrive on the scene just so we could have special holidays. He didn't arrive just so we could have special songs. Yes, there are songs and they are good to glorify the Lord, but that wasn't the sole purpose of Jesus to say, I'm going to arrive on the scene so people can sing about me later on. That's a good idea. He is worthy of singing too, Absolutely. There should be a joy because of what Jesus has done. But we're seeing with the arrival of Jesus that everything that God had been working out in the history, the history that was woven through the Scriptures, was bringing about the fulfilled promise and provision found in Jesus. That He is the completion of everything that God said, I will bring about. He is the completion 
And that even as we sit today awaiting that day that Jesus will return, we have a status of already and not yet. Because of Jesus' completion that's found in Him. What do I mean by that? That every promise that is found in Jesus is absolutely complete from the moment He said it is finished on the cross and then walked out of the grave. It was finished. And it will not change. So we sit with that already status, approved, paid in full. For those who believe, we are the redeemed. And then there will be that fulfillment of when Jesus returns again. And that which is promised, that which has been stood and firm and fixed, we'll see the fulfillment of it. We will see it all come to place. But until that day, we are called to remember how good it is that we walk with this new covenant. So today... As the writer of Hebrews is talking about what we can confidently say about Jesus being better, about being superior, more excellent, more perfect, exceedingly good, we're going to see what we can confidently observe about Jesus based on the new covenant that he establishes. You see, Jesus established a new covenant that was different from that which is the old. The old covenant being that of the Old Testament But even the Old Testament spoke about a a covenant that was coming. A covenant that would supersede that which already existed. If you want to know where these are, you can look at Exodus 25.40, Isaiah 54.13, Zechariah 8.8, and of course the biggest one, Jeremiah 31.31-34. These are texts that are referenced in the Scriptures. You may have noticed on the screen, or maybe in your copy of the Bible, sometimes they put things in italics whenever they're quoting or they may put them in quotation marks, or sometimes it's bold print. That is meaning the Bible at this time is quoting from what was already written in the Old Testament. It's taking us back to those texts and saying this new thing is not completely scrapping the old thing, but it is a fulfillment. It is making the completion of that which was there before. So in this new covenant, there's a few things that the writer tells us to to look confidently at Jesus, to observe about what He is doing and why He has such authority to change that. Uh, a few years ago, social media really became a thing. Um, there were social avenues, and, and when the internet was still young, you know, there were, there were little avenues that were social in their nature, but social media really came on the scene and became really big, but the two sites, MySpace and Facebook, other social media things have, have blossomed since then, of course, YouTube and, and Twitter and, and all those things, Instagram. But, When MySpace and Facebook came out, the whole thing was for you to have a little bit of control, even though you don't own all the control. If you read the terms and conditions, which no one does, you know that you don't have complete control. But you have a little control over this little neighborhood on the Internet. And no one is supposed to be able to change those statuses except you. You hold that authority. And so whenever... You know, uh, your relationships, if you didn't, weren't married when you established a Facebook, whenever you got engaged or you started dating someone or it got complicated, you could change your status and say, it's complicated or I'm married and that kind of thing. You had the authority to do so because the, the, the people over MySpace and Facebook had given you that little bit of authority. So in looking at that, when we look at the Bible, you may think, who How can Jesus have such power that He can change the status? And we're going to look at that. First of all, the Bible tells us to observe Jesus the monarch. 
The majestic one, the one with power, the one with authority, the one who holds the very right to do this. Verse 1 says, now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The Bible uses this this terminology of majestic and throne and kingly and heaven. It sits this because everything that's been set up until this point is pointing to Jesus holding this authority. In the last part of chapter 7, remember once again, I know I've said this multiple times through this letter, and anytime you read through the Bible, aside from basically the book of Psalms, the chapters are not native to the text. The chapters are not native to the text. These are things that we've added. So when we divide them, chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, they were not originally written like that. They're a continual thought, a continual uh, goal from the beginning of the letter to the end. That's why it's good not to just pull out a text and pretend it can sit by itself all on its own. It's good to read it in the whole of that book of the Bible and especially in the whole of the Bible. And so here, when you see now the main point of what it being said, we see chapter 8, verse 1, and sometimes we strip it away as if it's its own separate thing. But it's not. He's saying, based on everything we've just talked about, of how Jesus is in a priesthood forever, and how Jesus is the one, uh, the kind of priest that we need, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The writer goes on to say, this is the kind of priest that we have. The the whole point of this is that look at the authority that Jesus has. Observe it. And don't just like kind of look at it, glance it, be like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Jesus got some power. That's neat. Observe it to the point that it becomes a part of your being. It becomes a part of the fabric of who you are. That when you recognize and observe the very authority that Jesus has, it strips away the authority that we pretend to hold on to. Observe who sits on the throne and who is not. We need to observe it in that way. The main point that the writer of Hebrews is saying to his readers who are conflicted, they're thinking, I've got pressure from the empire that is striking back at me on what I'm doing as I follow the Lord, and I have a struggle at home with the people who claim to have faith, where should I land? Maybe I should just put Jesus in a lesser place. Maybe I shouldn't talk about Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, with the main point of this, how could you ever do that? Because don't you recognize who it is That is sitting on the throne. And guess what? It is not the man in the mirror. It is not that person. No matter how much the world may try to push and feed you this level, yes, you have free will. Yes, you have the ability to respond to the greatness of God. But the very authority, the throne, the King is Jesus. Observe Him. Observe the character of Christ that in everything that's been said about how this person had to be holy and innocent and undefiled and exalted above the heavens, that is in Jesus. Observe His character and recognize that the one that holds that authority, He's also perfect. 
He's not faulty and having character flaws like the other people that we put on earthly thrones. No matter how good anybody is that's ever sat on an earthly throne, an earthly desk, an earthly chair, all of them are imperfect. But Jesus ain't. Jesus is absolutely perfect. Notice the character found in Him. Notice the completion that's found in Him. It says that this is the kind of high priest that we have. The one who sat down at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of the heavens. You know how good Jesus is? He got to sit down. Not because He was tired, but because He was done. He got to sit down because His work was complete. He didn't have to get up and do anything else to do to make it complete. He, he says, I've sat down. I can take my rest because what I've done is exceedingly good. He kind of harkens back to, to Genesis chapter 1 when the Lord saw all that He had done in completing. He said it was exceedingly good and He rested. Not because He was tired. Not because He was weary. But because He was done. And it was good. And so this imagery of Jesus sitting down at the throne shows that not only in Jesus do we have the one who has a great character and the one who has authority, but we have the one who has completed everything necessary for this new covenant to be established. We have the one that wears the crown. This is not just any seat. This is not just him pulling up the tool bench chair and sitting down. This is the throne of all heaven. The throne that, that is the center of all authority in the cosmos. That's the throne that Jesus has sat on. Observe Jesus the monarch. This helps us to look at what these promises that Jesus gives us as, as so much bigger and so much weightier in our life than we sometimes take them. Because all of us have probably had good things promised to us. Kind words said to us. Nice gifts given to us. But what Jesus gives is far more weighty far more worthy to be treasured because of the one who has given it. Observe Jesus, the monarch. Secondly, the writer tells the the readers, these who are struggling in their faith, those who are true believers and those who are wavering on whether or not to place their faith in the Lord or to walk away. He says, observe Jesus, the minister. Now, I know sometimes we take that word minister and we give it a job title. And here I am using it as such. But the word minister, do you know what it means? Any clue? Some people think it means pastor, church director. Because we, we give those titles, the minister of music, the minister of youth, the minister of education, the minister, and, and we've even seen some governments take that word, the minister of these things in other countries. But the word minister comes from the Greek word doulos, which really means the servant. That's all a minister is. It's a servant. And that's why the Bible tells us all of us are called to ministry. We're all called to service. And you know who else was called to service? The one who sat down on the throne. Observe Jesus, the minister, the one who served, the one who served faithfully. It says that He was a minister, a servant of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. You know what's interesting about that? 
Jesus never, ever walked into the temple while He was a man on earth. He went to the temple courts. But He never walked into the temple as a man. You know why? Because He wasn't the priest. He wasn't the priest appointed at the time. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. From the tribe of Levi, it was the only people that could even get close to the actual temple building. And only the priests from the tribe of Levi were the ones that could go into the, into the temple. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. But here it says Jesus was the minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. So it's not speaking of this earthly building. When God told Moses to build the tabernacle and then they built the tabernacle and then ultimately built the temple as a permanent fixture, it was a shadow of this inner presence, this court of the Most High in the heavens. It was a, a picture that Moses was seeing as God was giving him the details of what is true in the heavens. And there Jesus has been. And there Jesus reigns. There Jesus rules. There Jesus has served. There Jesus is faithful to rule and reign. He may have never walked into the tabernacle that was built by the hands of men, but He presides over the one that was built by His hands. He presides over it. He serves to make sure it is always utterly holy, utterly perfect, utterly undefiled. He serves faithfully there. Because he understands that the sanctuary is that place where things are reconciled that were once broken. And the very near presence of God is brought to the very near presence of those who need Him. Who He chooses desire to dwell among. Jesus is the minister that serves faithfully. And He shares fully of who He is it says that every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, meaning if he had not ascended into heaven, by the way. He had, done, he had already come to earth, and he had already gone back to dwell in the heavenlies. But if he still remained on earth, it says he wouldn't be a priest. Since there are those the offering the gifts prescribed by the law. He would be prevented because those that were still doing the offerings of the tabernacles were still following the laws of the tabernacles. And Jesus would not have been allowed in that holy place because He wasn't of the right lineage. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. But we talked about that last week and that Jesus' priestly order supersedes that of the Levitical priesthood. But as one who is there above, he continues to faithfully serve. It says that in this place that of earth, it's a copy of the one in heaven, Jesus has, has done something in the heavenlies and done something in, on earth that is so amazingly full. This new covenant didn't come without a cost, in other words. It wasn't just a freebie that God threw out there. It wasn't just so you would draw near and say, here's a BOGO. Come inside, buy a coffee. No, it's costly and dear. And when it says Jesus serves fully, it says that He as a priest didn't come and say, well, I don't got nothing to give. It says, no, He gave the perfect gift. 
See, there was two types of, of, of offerings that were made in, at the Levitical priesthood, in the, in the earthly tabernacle. There were the offerings, which were things you were doing out of praise, out of goodness, out of adoration to God, saying, God, You are worthy of this. You have blessed me with this, and so I want to bless You and be mindful of what You have done in Your grace that overflows in my life. Those were the gifts, the offerings. But then you also had... The sacrifices for sin. And these are the things where you would bring and say, God, I recognize the sin in my life and I present them to You. Because the law prescribed ways for if you did something unintentionally and and you recognized your guilt before the Lord, you could provisionally place a costly sacrifice of, of, of an innocent animal to hopefully absolve you of your deathly ill sin. You could do that. But Jesus, when He goes to the cross, He is going not as someone saying, I am sinful and I need to pay for my own sin. No, He's going as a free offering saying, I recognize the holiness and nature of God and I freely offer my gift of praise as an obedient son going to the cross. But I also will pay a payment for sin, but not mine. I will serve and share faithfully and fully so that those who have sinned can be restored. So they can be welcomed not just in this perimeter of an earthly tabernacle. They will be drawn to the very heavenly place. They will be there. Observe not only Jesus the monarch and the minister, but observe Jesus the mediator. In verses 6-13, through we see this weighing back and forth. It says, now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree He is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For the first covenant had been faultless. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with His people, He says, see, the days are coming. And He goes on to lay out this. What the Bible is characterizing here is this is the difference between that which is new and that which was old. First of all, the old. The law is not as powerful as the Gospel mediator. The law is not as powerful as the one who brings and mediates this new covenant. It is never going to be as powerful as Jesus. The law cannot provide for us like the gospel mediator would because it was provisional and you had to return and you had to return and you had to return and you had to return. It was like you're stuck on a bad loop and you had to return over and over and over again. Because the abundance of your sin was clear and that one little provisional payment was never enough. The law could not provide for us like the gospel mediator, the once and for all sacrifice, the one who would set this covenant once and for all, a covenant that would never be stripped away from us because it would not be based on our righteousness. It would be based completely on His. The law isn't as personal as the gospel mediator. Verse 9 says, this is not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. I showed no concern for them as a people because they did not continue in my covenant. God established several covenants with His people over the, over the time periods of the history in the Bible. We see, first of all, the covenant with Noah to preserve life in the middle of a, a place where every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. God, in His grace, saves a man and his family. And He says in that 
covenant. I will never again destroy the earth in this way with a flood. That was a covenant that God says, I have made it out of my grace to you. What does Noah do? He builds an altar. Then he plants a vineyard. Then he makes some wine. Then he gets drunk and naked around his kids and embarrasses them. And then he curses one of his kids. Broken by man. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to send you to a place and you're going to have a new identity, a new community, a new security, and it's all going to be because of me. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham follows the Lord. He goes to a country he's not heard of. Begins uh, to trust the Lord, but he also distrusts the Lord. Instead of waiting on the promise of God, and, and granted it took 25 years, he tries to take things in his own hands and develops a warring peoples. Broken by man. Established by God, broken by man. You see the Mosaic Covenant where God delivers all the people out of Egypt. He, he's preserving their life. And establishes a law with them. What I will do to be a blessing to you if you will be obedient, but I will bring a curse to you if you rebel and go towards the idolatries of the nations. The people break it and they break it and they break it and they break it. And they're stuck on a loop. And when Jeremiah the prophet comes and talks about this new covenant, it is while they are in exile. They're in exile. They're already in punishment. And the blessing of their land has been taken away from them. They've been pushed away to a distant land. They're enslaved. They're under the authority of all others. And God is giving a promise out of His goodness. He's seeing the people in their sin and their consequences. He says, this is what I'm going to do. Out of my grace, I'm going to do something unlike anything else that's set before. And it will not be based and upheld by your end because you cannot uphold your end. But I am so loving towards you and I want to do this for you. I will do something costly that is personal. And it will be based not on ancestry. It will be based on you and your faith and your walk with me. That you personally will know the Lord. That you will, from the least of these to the greatest of these, will draw near and I will forgive you. You see, the law isn't as personal as the Gospel mediator. The Gospel mediator, he comes and shows us that God is holy and sin is unholy, unrighteous, it's unclean, it's filthy, and all of us have it. From the cleanest looking of us to the the dirtiest of us, all of us have sin in our life. And out of the great love of the Gospel mediator, he says, personally, I will go to the cross for the multitudes, but I will draw each one of them one by one. My grace is big enough to cover all people. But I will draw in one by one. This is the greatness of God. The greatness of the Gospel mediator found in this new covenant promise. You see, the law won't pardon us like the Gospel mediator. The one and the only one who has the authority to change the status of you were once Guilty. By default, children of wrath. By direction, going to hell. And to those who have placed their true faith in the Lord Jesus, not merely nodding their head or signing a piece of paper, but says, my life, every bit of it is in your hands. I trust you like I trust a chair I'm sitting in to uphold me, to carry me, to make sure I am covered and clean. 
the Bible brings this promise of a mediator who says, I will be that sufficient one. And your status as being a child inheriting, holding on to, sustained by this new covenant, will be yours forever and not stripped away. Not because of who you are. Because you're not the one sitting on the throne. You don't have that authority. Not because of how you serve. Because I want you to serve, but I will make this fulfilled in your place. Not because you have any good delegating skills and you can talk a good game. Man, I don't know how many, I don't know, I can't even tell you how many times I have come into church and man, I know I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. I've messed up big time. And I'm like, God, I promise if you just get me out of this and I don't have to get deal with the repercussions of it, I will fill in the blank. I don't know how many times I've done that in my life. And what it, what it comes down to is in those moments of weakness where I found myself, yeah, I was pleading with Jesus, but I was pleading something on my behalf. Like, it, I want to have a quid pro quo here. I'm going to do something, God, if you'll do this for me. But that's not how Jesus operates. He does it all on His behalf. That's why He is the perfect mediator. That what He does is He delivers the promise. He does so with power. I mean, think about it. No one else has to change the status, has the ability to change our life status and transform us from being unforgiven of my wrongdoing to forgiven of my wrongdoing. And then, I will never again remember their sins. You see, the law was all about something that covered your sin for a time. That that I... It was like the Passover lamb. It just covered you for a time to protect you from death. But with Jesus, it's not being covered from sin. It's being cleansed from sin. You see, the law was about our remembrance of sin. Every time they would go to the temple, all these sacrifices, all this blood, all this stuff, it just reminded them how ugly sin was. And sometimes we're not reminded of that until we step out the doors of the church. But what Jesus is about is not the remembrance of sin, it's about the remission of sin. You know what it is to go into remission, right? Some of you know what it's like to go into remission. No more cancer. Not even a remembrance of it. It's gone. This is what Jesus has done in this new covenant. So, what I want you to observe lastly it's the monarchy of Jesus. He's the one that sits on the throne. The, the ministry of Jesus, He's the one that makes this possible. The mediator of Jesus, it's not up to your skills of, of dialoguing back in, with, forth to Jesus and, and trying to make promises. It's, it's believing in the promise He's already made. But lastly, it's observing the metamorphosis that comes to Jesus. If we are people that are new covenant transformed people, there is a change in our life. Not only of the status, but we have a new identity. Once we were lost, but now we are found. Once we were dead, but now we are alive. Once we were sinful, but now we are righteous. Once we were unholy, but now we are holy. Once we were children of wrath, but we have now been adopted as children of God. There is a new identity. Not only is there a new identity, there's a new community. 
that, that as the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people, we're a part of that same community that, that we're all looking among one another and, and those who are of true faith, we're looking at one another and says, you're my brother and sister. You're my co-heir with Christ. You're my, my adopted family. And as such, man, we probably better get used to each other. Eternity is going to be spending a lot of time with a lot of people. And not only with our community, but we're not to become isolated and think maybe a church down the road doesn't have the right label. They don't have the right status, so I can't connect with them. No, we ought to be looking and, and maybe we don't all believe the same thing on secondary or third issues or preferences or anything like that, but when it comes to the Gospel, those who have the Gospel, man, we're going to be spending eternity together. They're our family. They may be strange cousins, but they're our family. And not only that, the metamorphosis that we have a new destiny because one day we'll get to walk and stand in a place we don't belong. Let's just be honest. I love talking about heaven. I think it's a great place. But if we're honest, it's a place we do not belong. Not on our own merits, we don't. There's no passport good enough. But based on Jesus and the new covenant He makes, He says that throne room, one day you're going to get to trod where you don't belong. But because of Me, you're absolutely welcome. That heavenly tabernacle, that of the earthly one, only certain people of a certain tribe on a certain day with a certain job title could go. That heavenly one, you don't belong there. But I serve there. You're going to come in. Because all of this is only possible through Jesus who is better. The Gospel is only good because it's Jesus that gave it. This is what we hold dear. and This is what we must proclaim. And today, this is what is extended to us so that we have peace. And if you don't know that peace, if you've never said and bent the knee to Jesus, said, Jesus, I recognize this throne that I try to, that I try to pretend there, it is only pretend. This service that I'm trying to do, it, it's not complete. This mediating I'm trying to promise, it's not going to cut it. This metamorphosis I'm trying to force my will into it, it's never going to happen. But through you, I am made new. May you find your peace in Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord God, today I, I pray that you would show us the incredible hope that we have in you as Christ our Savior. The promised one, the provided one, the powerful one, the one who is able to bring peace and save us. Lord, I pray that these, these promises that we see in the Scripture, we would not take them lightly. Your status-changing title, we would not change we would not take it lightly and that lord as we sing these songs we would sing them as the redeemed the ones who are transformed that there would not be any false mass but there would be true faith that we're singing these songs because they resonate with the truthfulness that you have placed in our hearts as you've written your law into the inner part of our being not merely on stone tablets lord that we would recognize what it means to be your child. We would recognize what it means to be your church. And we would recognize what it means to one day go to that place where you dwell eternally. And that will be the greatest hope. Not these places that are in the heavenlies, but being with you there. Because it's only by you that we get there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.